Well, I'd like to uh, begin this morning by uh, thinking about and telling you about a, a woman named Gladys Aylward. Uh, Gladys Aylward, uh, I'm going to put a picture of her up there, uh, born in 1902 uh, in London to a working class family. Uh, from her early teens onward, she worked as a, a parlor maid, which was still a thing uh, back then. Um, she didn't come from a family of faith, and yet in her uh, 20s, uh, she went to a revival meeting and she became a Christian. She came to faith. And shortly thereafter, she began to have a real heart uh, for the, the country of China. She realized that uh, at that time especially, there was uh, not many inroads into China in terms of uh, preaching the gospel, in terms of telling people about Jesus, uh, and she felt like she should be one of those people. So she started to train with a missionary organization, uh, but when it came time to sort of getting approval to go, she was denied. And that was because her language training just hadn't progressed. She hadn't been able to really learn the Chinese language as much as they thought she should. And uh, so what she started doing is she started to talk to anyone that she knew who was a Christian that she felt could probably go over there and do a good job. She was um, asking them to go. She talked to her family, talked to her friends, talked to her doctor, talked to lawyers she knew in the church, pastors, anyone that she could think of. She, she told them, look, you need to go. People over there need Jesus. And after month after month of this, Finally, her brother Lawrence said to her, Gladys, look, if you're so keen on this, why don't you just go yourself? And at that moment, it was like a lightning uh, bolt, not a lightning bolt, a light bulb. A <laughs> lightning bolt would be not so exciting. Um, a light bulb would, went off in her mind. She realized that she had been kind of uh, hesitating, and, and so she, she made two resolutions on that day, in that moment. The first was that she would never again ask someone else to do something that God was calling her to do. That's what she realized she, she'd been doing. That God was calling her and she was trying to get someone else to take that on. Secondly, she resolved that she was going to go to China, even if it meant going without any support. And in fact, that's what she did. She took her life savings. Uh, she bought a train ticket from, I don't know, I guess France, all the way through Russia to, to Japan, and then found her way into China. Uh, she connected with an existing uh, missionary there, a woman who had kind of a bed and breakfast, and uh, she began to care for and connect with uh, the people of China. In fact, uh, the reason you might have heard her name is that she became quite famous for something that happened in 1938. I'm going to put another picture up. Uh, this is her with a group of orphans. Uh, at this point, the Japanese army was invading China, and she led this group of orphans over this mountain to safety, uh, she was renowned for the Chinese people. In fact, they had a name for her, which was the virtuous one, because of her care, because of her integrity. See, today in our text, we come to a moment uh, very similar to that uh, that Gladys uh, experienced, where all of a sudden things became clear for her. Of course, in the book of Esther, we're talking about Esther, and she has a similarly difficult decision to make. Uh, it's a decision that is going to uh, put her life on the line, where she has to step out in such a way that um, it's very uncertain, very difficult. And the challenging thing for Esther is that kind of like Gladys, she really struggled to, to get a sense of clarity about what she should do. In fact, uh, we're going to see that Esther was not very practiced, not in the habit of stepping out in faith this way. So, the focus of our time together will be that decision that, that Esther is going to make, but also really the nature of faith itself. In fact, there's uh, going to be two points, two truths about faith, and I'm going to give you the first one uh, right off the bat. So here it is, our first point. Comfort can dull our faith. Comfort can dull our faith. 
Uh, so let's get into chapter 4. If you remember chapter 3 uh, was when this decree went out from the king, really from Haman, that all the Jews would be destroyed. And so now we're going to see the reaction to this decree. This is uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 1 uh, to 3. It goes this way. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So we'll pause there. Uh, the response that you see here is a pretty typical response when something horrible happens uh, in the, for the Jewish people, for the people of God, um, they would lament. They would put on uh, like a sackcloth. They would uh, sit in ashes. They would lament publicly. All of, all of these things is what happened when something horrible was going on in the life of God's people or even in someone's personal life. This was a sign to everyone, look, there, there is trouble. But there is something missing that you might have noticed from this lamenting. Uh, the thing that's missing is prayer. It's very, very strange, actually. There's, there's no mention of prayer. In fact, if you look at the whole chapter, even the whole book, there, there's no mention of anyone praying, um, which is strange because praying and lamenting always go together. In fact, there's a book in the Bible called Lamentations, which was written uh, when Jerusalem was conquered and God's people were initially taken off into exile. And it's filled with lamenting, filled with crying out to God. So there's lamenting and prayer the whole way through. And the people in the book of Lamentations are saying, God, please restore your people. They, they know that they're being disciplined and, and, and that God is at work, but they're saying, God, please make things better. That's, that's part of what lamenting is all about. You're asking God for help. In fact, in fact uh, even the pagan people of Nineveh, they know how to lament properly. Do, do you remember Nineveh? This is where Jonah goes and tells them, look, uh, here's the word from God. You're going to be destroyed because of your wickedness. And look at their response. Here's Jonah 3, 8, 9. The king says to all of the people who are not God's people, let us call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So they call out to God, and yet we don't see this in Esther at all. So we have to ask the question or, or wonder why. Why wouldn't God's people respond in prayer? Well, I think a likely answer is just a simple answer, which is that they were not in the habit of praying. See, my sense is, or hopefully the sense you've got from reading the story thus far, is that the, the people of God at the time had, had gotten fairly comfortable in the kingdom of Persia. Uh, they knew they were in exile, but they were allowed to still do their, their religious festivals, Passover, all those kinds of things. They, they were allowed to do that. They were allowed to conduct business, own property. Uh, they pretty much could live their lives as long as they went along with what the empire wanted. There was, in a sense, um, a, a comfortable life for them that they were enjoying. And so at some point, the lamenting that started when exile began transitioned to an acceptance of their life. And so the praying stopped. This actually probably shouldn't surprise us. If you look at any demographic research, looking at the religious activities of those in North America, uh, there is always a gap between those people who say that they're a Christian, say they believe in God, and those who actually practice their faith. Like if they ask questions like, how often do you attend church or, or pray or read your Bible? Th that number will be less than those people who say that they believe in God. There's always this gap between the professing of faith and actually the practicing of faith. 
You might have noticed this on a personal level. I know I have at different times in my life where I've got out of the, the habit of really being in prayer. I remember early on in my faith, I came to Christ in my teens. And for a number of years there, I was really not uh, practicing my faith uh, with any intentionality. I wasn't really reading my Bible much, wasn't really praying much. And I remember one time, because um, it kind of shocked me when this happened, but I was working, uh, serving, you know, volunteering at a, a camp, Timberline Ranch, great camp, summer camp. I was there as a counselor. And I remember that uh, there was a, a medical emergency uh, for one of the staff kids, one of the babies was sick. And I remember one of the other summer staff coming by and saying to me that the baby is sick. We called the ambulance, you need to pray. And, and the thing that shocked me is I remember just thinking, I'm, I'm not sure how to do that exactly. I mean, she kind of told me and took off, like, like assumed I would know what to do, because of course you just pray. But I remember distinctly saying, being very uncertain about how, how exactly do I ask God to intervene because I just was not in the habit of doing it. This can happen without us even noticing it, where we just go through our lives and we're used to dealing with problems as they come, with, with things that are in our hands, things that are tangible. Uh, we, we try to deal with problems, we, we you know, troubleshoot, uh, we triage, we figure out what's going on, we, we just we barrel on ahead dealing with whatever is in our life without often stopping to really pray and ask God for wisdom or for help. And see, I think that happens more often when we are comfortable, when our life is, is fairly peaceful. What tends to happen then is our, our muscles of faith, they, they shrink, they atrophy. We're not, we're not used to going to God for help. And so when something big happens, we, we totally forget about it. Now, Esther, I think, would have been uh, kind of the prime example of one who was enjoying the comforts of Persia because she was in the most comfortable place in the kingdom. She lived in the cocooned luxury of the royal palace, completely separated from the rest of the kingdom. In fact, she doesn't even know what's going on. Everyone in the streets is wailing and moaning. She's in the palace, completely oblivious, until... Until people come and tell her that Mordecai, your relative, he's, he's in sackcloth and ashes. So here's uh, verses 4 to 8, the next section. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She knew something was going on with Mordecai, right? So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in the front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So Mordecai, once again, uh, seems to know kind of exactly what's going on. And uh, he has all the details. Somehow he knows even the details of the financial, you know, the bribe that uh, Haman's going to give or the incentive. He knows all those details and he wants them presented to Esther because Mordecai seems also to know exactly what should be done. He says, Esther, you have to go. You have to plead uh, our case to the king. You're in the position to do it. And so right away he says to Hatha, go tell her this is what she needs to do. But of course, Esther is not so sure about this idea. What I want us to know at this point is that... Um, we don't really see Esther here in her initial reaction full of faith and courage. What we see in her is that her, her mind is beginning to spin with all of the risks involved with going to the king. So let's look here at her first response. This is verses 9 to 11. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. 
Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So she's telling Mordecai things that uh, he, he probably, he, he definitely already knows. Well, what everyone really knows, that the king's throne room is private and secure. In fact, there were only seven people in the kingdom, uh, the, the, the princes of Persia. We met them back in chapter one. They were the only ones who could enter the king's throne room unannounced because they were doing probably, you know, kingdom business. Everyone else, there was one law you were put to death as soon as you stepped into that inner room, unless you were pardoned by the king, and he did that by holding out his golden scepter. So Mordecai knew this, but Esther is feeling the need to remind him about this. Um, added to that uh, is some other things that Esther knows about the king, things that actually we, we've come to understand as well, and that is that, that he has a short fuse. I mean, we've seen him react very strongly in the first chapter. The other thing we've seen in the first chapter is that he does not take kindly to assertive women in his life. She's thinking about what happened to Vashti. Um, she also is probably very aware, in fact, she's trying to make Mordecai understand that she realizes that she can be easily replaced. Vashti was replaced fairly quickly. Um, the king has a whole room full of uh, women. He's got a harem, concubines. In fact, what she says to Mordecai is, look, I haven't even seen him in a month and we can surmise that he has not been sleeping alone. So while Esther's position as queen was very comfortable, it was by no means secure or permanent. Added to all of those factors are, are the things that Esther knows about herself, which is that she has been deceptive about her identity. She's lied about, hasn't told the truth about the fact that she's a Jew. Uh, on the one hand, you know, she might, she might think the king's not going to take kindly to that. But on the other hand, she might be wondering, you know, would, would God actually use someone like me? Someone who hasn't been forthright about who I am, hasn't really been faithful in terms of following him, has compromised in a lot of different ways. For something big like this, you, you would think that she might be thinking there's, there's got to be someone else that God can use. Well, Mordecai, in his second appeal, um, he really puts a fine point, though, on the desperate nature of the situation. So it's not that he's discounting all of those things. He's just saying, look, Esther, you need to understand um, the gravity of the situation. And so he says really three things in the next few verses. We're going to kind of work through them one at a time just to understand them. So first is uh, verses 12 and 13. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. So really what he's saying here is, look, don't think that you're that safe. I mean, at some point, somehow, uh, it's going to become known that you're a Jew and then the law is the law inside the palace, outside the palace. So don't think you can just sort of ignore this. Beginning of verse 14, he says this, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Now, it's not clear what the other place um, was or if he knew, but perhaps there what he was saying is, look, he just knows that in the past God has saved his people, God will do it again. And that last part where he says, you and your father's house will perish, uh, some interpret that and say it's kind of almost a threat against Esther that the Jewish people will know that she didn't do what she could have done. I'm not really sure that that's in keeping with his relationship with her. I mean, he's like a father to her. I think more what he's saying there is, is look, um, 
Uh, if you don't respond in faith here, um, you're going to dishonor yourself and you're going to dishonor your family name. That in that sense, your, your father's house will perish because it will become known that you did not do what you could have done. It's in a, in a, in a culture that really values honor, this would be a devastating thing. So he's really kind of put the, put the weight on there, the pressure on there. But the third thing he says is, is one of the most famous things from the book of Esther, which is this. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, there's a few different ways to read that last line. Most of the time when this story is depicted, that line is read with a real sense of conviction and faith in that Mordecai is full of faith, that he knows what God is going to do. And so he's just trying to, to encourage Esther to step out in faith and that he knows, though, exactly or has a good sense of God. I, I'm not totally convinced that's the right way to read this. And that's mostly because in all of this interaction, you'll notice that Mordecai never even mentions the name of God. There's no reference to his character, no, no, no reference to, to this God who might save him. He just says, somehow, we will, we will maybe be saved. Uh, I want to show the contrast between this kind of reaction and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember these three guys? Uh, they also were in exile. This was the beginning of the exile. Um, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, had built this golden statue and wanted everyone to bow down to it, and they were refusing and to look at the interaction between them and the king. So the king, this is Daniel 3.15. The king says, Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Like, what hope do you have, guys? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, firstly, I think we see there um, a real sense of courage, a real sense of, um, of boldness on their part, but also the, the sense that I get there is that there's a much clearer sense that they have about who God is, that they really know this God that they are trusting in. They know what he's like. They know the hope that they have in him, even beyond death. You don't see them deliberating weighing out options, trying to figure out what they're going to do. They're ready to step out in faith and trust God fully, regardless of what happens. It doesn't seem like with Esther and Mordecai, there's that same sense of conviction. And I think it's because they're not really prepared for this kind of thing. They've, they've been comfortable for a long time. And it seems that they've lost touch with their sense of what it means to really trust God, if they ever had it. There are many who were raised... Uh, Jewish, culturally Jewish, but out, without a real sense of faith at that time. Just like today, there are those that are raised Christian in a sense, but there's no real sense of, of faith and trusting God in the day-to-day -day of their lives. And see, my point here is that this is some of the trouble that comes with a comfortable life. We, all, we want a comfortable life. We like a comfortable life. We like to live a life of comfort, but it doesn't actually grow us in the way we need to grow. I mean, think, um, think of your physical health. If you have a life that's very comfortable, very relaxed, without expending any physical effort, by that I mean you're on the couch a lot, you're a good friend of the couch, and of watching a lot, eating a lot, you will, you'll feel great in a sense. You'll feel very comfortable. But if someone were to come to you and, and need you to do something physical, like help them move, or go for a hike or anything, your response would be, ooh, that sounds like... I think it's going to be hard. I think like a lot of work. I'm not sure I'm the right guy for you on that, right? You're not ready. You're not equipped to do anything physical. The only way that you're going to be ready for a physical challenge is if you put your body through pain, 
through hard work, through effort, where you breathe hard, that's, that's how you prepare yourself. And see, the same is true for our spiritual health. If we are not used to spending time in prayer, to reading the word, uh, to stepping out in faith in the small things of our, of our life, then our, our faith will, will shrink, will atrophy almost like, like a muscle, and we won't be ready for some of the trials or difficulties that God brings into our life. Uh, let me give you a, a positive example of this kind of a thing, is spiritual fitness, if we can call it that. Uh, a little while ago, uh, someone from the church emailed me and said, you know, can I come and meet with you? Because there's, there's things going on in my life and I just feel really overwhelmed. I said, absolutely, come on in. And so the person came in and I was meeting with them and, um, and I could understand why they had, they had called me. There's three or four things in their life, in the life of people they knew, in their, in their family, that were overwhelming, uh, that were heartbreaking, that were difficult. Uh, some things where a lot of it was outside of their control. Uh, other situations where they had to maybe make it a decision, but they weren't sure what to do. It was kind of an ethical quandary. There's, there's a lot to be overwhelmed about. But the thing I, I thought of after is that even with all the difficulty of what we were talking about, the meeting itself was not very difficult. It, it wasn't a meeting filled with despair. And I think that's because... Um, because this person was fairly uh, spiritually fit. And by that I mean, as I spoke with them just about their life, things like prayer, things like Bible reading, things like repentance, they, they were not unfamiliar to this person. In fact, this person came to the meeting with a Bible, with a notebook. As I began to talk about different s- scriptures, they, they would open it up, they would, they would take notes. They seemed eager to hear from God. But what I noticed is that they weren't hearing from God for the first time. They were leveraging all of the, the practice that they had all the things that they already knew about God and the gospel. And really, I was just serving as a reminder for them. And they would say, oh yeah, I know that's true. Yeah, that, that, I needed to hear that. It, it was an encouraging thing. It's, it's what we should do for each other in the church. But it wasn't, we weren't reinventing the wheel. And see, I think sometimes what happens is that our, our, a crisis in our life becomes a faith crisis because we just, we're not strong enough. We're, we're not fit enough to deal with the challenge. And that's because we haven't really practiced our, our faith. So let me just ask us this before we go any, any further. Could it be that because our life is so comfortable, we, we have dulled our faith or we have allowed our faith to be dulled? That we aren't in the practice of stepping out in situations that are uncomfortable. In fact, we, you know, we avoid those kind of situations. Could it be that we aren't really um, doing the, the disciplines of faith that will make us grow stronger because we've become lazy or because we've just been in the practice of dealing with things ourselves? And if that's the case, what's going to happen when there is a real crisis in our life? We're going to be overwhelmed. We're going to be unprepared. We're going to waffle and equivocate, I think a bit like we see Mordecai and Esther doing. So listen, the, the good news about this, this book and about this story is that we see time and again God's grace to his people. And the amazing thing we see here is that even though there does seem to be some lack of preparedness, and even though no one is praying and no one is talking about God, God is still at work. He's at work behind the scenes. In fact, he has led Esther to this situation where she must make a decision. And even though that's agonizing, even though that's, you can just imagine that her stomach in knots, this is very good for her. Because it forces her to make a decision and, and to declare what it is that she truly believes. So this is our second thing about faith. Firstly, we saw that comfort can dull our faith. But secondly, we see that our faith is defined by difficult choices. I told you about Gladys 
Gladys Aylward at the beginning, and about the difficult choice that she had to make. That was a moment that defined her. It, it, it was clarifying for her, this is who I am, this is what I believe, this is what I'm going to do with my life. This is obviously that kind of a moment for Esther, where she has to make a very, very difficult decision, but in the process of it, it's a, it's a great blessing for her. Not just for the people of God, which we'll find out in the end, but even right in the moment of it. The wrestling with it is good for her. And what we need to see is that because God loves us, he's going to bring these kinds of choices, these kinds of decisions into our lives over and over and over again. Not, not always big ones like this, but small ones. Like in the schoolyard. Will we go over and spend time with the kid that no one wants to spend time with? Will we just pretend not to see them playing by themselves every day or will we go over? Will, will we put ourselves at risk of the other kids saying something just to show them some kindness and some love? Do we say anything about the, the shady stuff we see going on in our workplace? Do, do, we, do we open that can of worms and say, I, I can't be a part of it? Or, or do we just turn a blind eye and take the easier route? Do we enter into a thorny situation that a friend is going through? Do we, do we speak some words of truth, gently, kindly, but speak it still into their life? Or do we just keep it light? Do we even talk about our faith with the people around us? I mean, our, our whole lives are filled with choices like these. And what we have to understand is these choices, they either solidify our faith or they undermine it. They, they, they erode it. We never like those decisions. We, have, we tend to avoid those decisions. But they are part of the way that God helps to strengthen us, helps to clarify what we really believe. In fact, if you look through the Bible, what you notice is that God always gives his people these kinds of choices. Think of Abraham. God comes to him and says, leave everything you've known, follow me. I'm not going to tell you where we're going, just follow this way. He has to make a choice. That's what Jesus said to all his disciples when he called them for the first time. Come, follow me, leave, leave your business Leave that boat full of fish. Leave the good job. Leave your family. Come and, and follow me. There's always a choice to make because in the making of the choice, we're forced to decide who do we really trust? Where, where's our security? Where's our, where's our comfort? In fact, a life without these difficult decisions, it, it feels good, but we have to understand it's not ultimately good for us. Part of God's good work is having to make these decisions. So if you right now have been struggling with the decision and, and you just think, God, why, why are you putting me through this? My hope is that you'll see that God is not punishing you. That in fact, this is God's grace. This is God's blessing in our lives to have to wrestle through these kinds of things so that our faith will be stronger. The other thing we need to see and realize is that, you know, God is very patient with us. If you think about this, by the time we get to chapter four, uh, Esther has had a number of choices to make. And I think we'd be hard-pressed to say that she made many of them with faithfulness in mind. She seems to have compromised a lot. And yet God is still at work. God is still calling her to, to, to more choices that she can make. In fact, when it really counts, what we're going to see here in just a moment is a shift in her. A shift from self-preservation to willing sacrifice. And it's a beautiful transition. So here's verses 15 to 17. The end of our, of our section goes this way. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink. For three days, night or day, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. 
Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. That's fantastic. I mean, that, man, those words are full of faith. That there has been some transition in Esther. It's amazing, especially in light of the uncertainty up to this point. Where there, just everything locks and she says, no, I'm, I'm going to go. I see now what I must do. She asks for support from the community and she goes and, and does it. This is the beautiful thing about how God works. Even, even if we've been really wrestling with a dilemma, even if we're, we're uncertain and we're, and we're waffling, he still, he, he's patient with us. He brings us very often to the point of conviction so that we might act out our faith, so we might grow in our faith and, and do the right thing. It's beautiful when you see examples of this uh, in people's lives, in your own life. If you can look back and, and see those times where, man, it was so difficult to make that choice, but once you made it, God was with you. I want to tell you about the story of another uh, Christian man from the 20th century uh, that, um, that went through really an extreme version of this kind of wrestle in terms of choices to make. Uh, his name was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, here's a picture of him uh, when he was younger. Uh, Bonhoeffer is famous because uh, he was a Christian and a pastor uh, in Germany uh, just before and during World War II. And he's famous because he was one of the few fast pastors to really speak out against the Nazis. In fact, he was part of the internal resistance there in Germany against Hitler. Uh, he even became a spy to help undermine uh, the government and was part of plots to kill Hitler. So Bonhoeffer's story is not the story of like one single choice that he had to make, but dozens and dozens of difficult choices. I mean, at the beginning, he had to decide, would he, would he speak out against the Nazis? Would he preach against the regime? Um, he had to decide what he would do if he was going to be drafted into the German army. Would he serve? Would he not? How would he deal with this? Later on, he had to decide, would it be right for him to be a spy? Like he would have to lie a lot. It, it, could, could he do that for a good cause? Could he be part of a plot to kill Hitler? Would God forgive him for that? Very, very difficult decisions. And one thing I noticed in, in looking back through his story is that there was one point uh, just before World War II when Bonhoeffer was, um, he realized that he could be drafted into military service in Germany at, at any point. And he was, just, he was just really struggling to figure out how he was going to deal with this. And so what he did is he applied for a military uh, deferment meaning he applied for kind of like a one-year leave so he wouldn't have to be part of the army. And he got his uh, colleagues in America to, to secure a teaching position. So he applied and amazingly, he, he got the okay, he got the green light. And so he got a ship and sailed to America. And you could just think, think of his mindset at that time. And for the people who knew him, um, probably they were praying for him. Right? Praying, Lord, what, what should Dietrich do? Uh, and then these doors opened. And you would think that everyone would be like, oh, yes, God, you've answered our prayers. This is what we were waiting for. He got clear sailing to go back. He's out of harm's way. You've answered our prayers. And yet, when he got to America, he had no peace about his decision. I mean, his stomach was just in knots all the time. For 26 days, he kind of prayed day and night. Uh, he searched the scripture and there was a verse that kept coming back to him and it was Isaiah 28, 16, which reads this way. It's very short. The one who believes does not flee. That's what just stuck in his heart, stuck in his mind. And the more he thought about his life, the more that he came to one simple conclusion, even if it was going to be difficult, even if it was going to be dangerous, his place was at home in Germany. 
His place was, was there trying to do whatever good he could to, to resist the Nazis. And so he packed his bags like in a day, got on the next ship. In fact, it was one of the last ships back over uh, to Germany across the Atlantic before the, the war began. And he left a note for his colleagues who had like worked so hard to get him that position. Here's the note. I'll put it up on the screen. He said simply, I know which of the alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice in security. I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I find that fascinating. Because what he's saying is that the place of security for him was a mistake. That's not where he should be. See, if Bonhoeffer had stayed in America, he, he would have survived the war. But instead, he had a conviction that he needed to be back in Germany. He needed to be uh, opposing Hitler, opposing the evil in his country. And he did that for six years. Some he did in his, in his speaking, but when that got too dangerous, as I said, he became a spy. He did become involved in plots trying to assassinate Hitler. He did it for six years until he was arrested, until he was hanged in 1945 in, um, in the yard of Flossenburg concentration camp, just two weeks before it was liberated by the Allied forces. I want to read one other a quote from him, something that he wrote that I think is relevant for, uh, for the book of Esther. He writes this, he said, the ultimate question for a responsible man to ask is not how he is to extricate himself heroically from the affair, but how the coming generation is to live. See, that's essentially the choice that Esther is having to make. Will she find a way to extricate herself from the affair? She had options. She, she could disappear back into the palace, right? She could hope that no one would, would know who she is. There, there were options there, but... But that's not what she needed to concern herself with. She needed to concern herself with the future of her people. Of what it would look like for her to do the right thing in this difficult situation. And here's the point. In both cases, for Esther and for Bonhoeffer, their faith was defined by the choice that they made. That the pressure, that the crucible of that kind of choice, it clarified for them what they really believed. And our faith is no different. I mean, the scale of our choices may be different. But the nature of the choices is always the same. We're always forced to consider what is it that we really believe? Who are we living for? Who do we trust? Are we living for our own personal security or for the blessing of others? Are, are, are we living for our comfort or for the glory of God? I mean, that is the essence of our faith. Who do we trust in? What do we believe in? What is our life going to be all about? And again, the blessing that we've seen is that even if we've failed in the past, even if we've, we've compromised like Esther did, even if we've gotten on a boat and gone in the absolute wrong direction like Bonhoeffer did, God is still at work in our lives. And, and the key for us is when the next decision comes, um, what are we going to choose? Are, are we going to slip farther and farther away from the Lord? surround our lives with more and more comfort, more of the things that the world has to offer, or are we going to step out in faith? Because that really is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Of putting ourselves willingly, intentionally in positions where we will honor the Lord, risking whatever it is that we have in our life for the greater joy, the greater glory of seeing God honored and for blessing others. I want to end. I want to end with the words of Jesus who himself, at, at his moment of, of great decision, uh, did not equivocate, did not waffle. 
And it's a blessing, encouragement, I hope, to hear his words as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before going to the cross and dying for our sins. Here are his words. Father, he prayed. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is a statement of faith. A statement of a pure heart. Of absolute conviction of knowing who God the Father is. May that be true of all of us. Like, I'm not sure. Maybe there are some of us, some watching, that there is a big decision that you're dealing with and, and you've really been wrestling. Maybe for some of us, we've just become so comfortable that we haven't even really had any decisions like that, whatever the case may be. What we should see is that the typical life of a Christian, life of a faith following Jesus, is filled with these kinds of decisions. And they aren't just excruciating and agonizing. They are opportunities for us. Opportunities for us to honor the God of our salvation. Opportunities for other people to see in us what it means to have real peace and security even in the most uncertain of times. And so we need to make ourselves fit. We need to be in prayer. I hope we are. Lord, would you, would you help me not to miss those opportunities? Not to turn a blind eye, not to take the easy route, but to step forward boldly into those situations where we can honor you so that our faith may grow and so that other people, whoever God brought into our lives, could be blessed. So I'm going to pray that for us as we close, that that is the kind of people we would be so that God might use us for his glory. Pray with me. Lord God, I pray you would help us. Help us, Lord, in the the many decisions and circumstances of our lives. Lord, I pray if there are those of us who are feeling convicted, like there are some areas where we have not been faithful, where we've, we've turned a blind eye, or we've been avoiding the difficult situation. God, would you give us the courage to step out in faith. Lord, for those of us who are right in the midst of, of difficult decisions, God, would you bring us wisdom that we need to see the right way forward and, and to do that. And Lord, above all, I pray that we would know your love and your grace, that even if, even if we failed in the past, even if we've been so soft in the past in terms of what we believe, God, I, I, I pray that we would see that through your word, through prayer, through the disciplines of faith that you've given us, Lord, it's... it's Lord, it's a sign of your love for us that you call us to these things, these difficult, challenging things, because in it, we have the greater joy of knowing you more. And so I pray that would be true of us. I pray, God, you would grow us in faith by these things. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.